0: This is Thinking Freely with the ACLU of Maryland, the show that talks about what's happening politically in Maryland from the courts to the streets. I'm your host, Amber Taylor. The right to vote and to have your vote accurately and fairly counted is a fundamental right of all Americans. Elected officials shouldn't make voters choose between their health and their right to vote. There are sensible and safe solutions. But during the COVID-19 pandemic, many voters have felt lost and confused. And then there are the people who have historically had their access to the ballot limited or deliberately blocked. Maryland must make sure that there are a variety of options for all people who currently have the right to vote to safely cast their ballots. There are many voters who cannot vote by mail, like voters with disabilities and limited English proficient voters. Also, voters who are younger and move frequently, who have lower incomes, and who may lack a current address on file with the government may not be able to receive an absentee ballot. We also cannot forget that Black people have historically had their voting rights under threat ever since the 14th Amendment was ratified giving Black men the right to vote. And Black voters have continued to have problems accessing and being denied the ballot well before COVID-19. Our democracy deserves a well-resourced election system run by proactive election administrators governed by a board. Our democracy deserves a well-resourced election system governed by proactive election administrators governed by board members passionate about voting rights and with an understanding of the many barriers to voting that exist for some people and implemented with a transparent process that promises clarity, equity, and accountability. Today we'll be joined by Joanne Antoine, Executive Director of Common Cause Maryland, Reverend Kobe Little, President of the Baltimore Branch of the NAACP, and Dana Vickers-Shelley, Executive Director of the ACLU of Maryland, to talk about voting rights, the challenges of voting during the COVID-19 pandemic, and what you need to know to exercise your right to vote by Election Day. Tuesday, November 3rd. Welcome, everyone. I'm so happy to have you all uh, virtually together as we talk about voting rights in this unprecedented election that we're about to be having in November, and just talking through about the election, uh, what people can expect in the 2020 election, and you know, just some things that they can keep in mind to make sure that they are exercising the right to vote. So a question that I have for all of y'all to really frame the conversation um, why does voting matter? Why is it important?
1: Voting is the uh, central practice. It is the elemental practice of democracy. For those of us who have been deprived of democracy for decades, if not centuries, it's essential for us to vote, to register our uh, voice, to register um, our views on how society should uh, should operate, and to uh, exercise our capacity to protect all of the rights that we should be afforded as human beings and as citizens of this country. Voting matters because our health care matters, because how our children are educated matters, because how our tax dollars are spent matters, because it matters how we approach uh, questions of public safety in our communities, and it matters how this country represents us in the world abroad.
2: This is Joanne. Um, I agree with everything that Reverend Little has said. Voting is the heart or the most fundamental component of our democracy. And when you look historically at the voting process in America, right, it was people who looked like us, black individuals, other disadvantaged communities, right, who were being excluded from the election process entirely. And while it's only been in recent years, it really hasn't been that long since we've gained the right to vote, uh, we see tactics being used ongoing, never ending, right, to disenfranchise us in any way possible. And I think for me, I always think about stories that my mother shared, right, as an immigrant who comes from another country where they don't feel as though their voices are heard in the process and coming to America, a place where she knew that so many individuals had fought for that right to vote, you know, for me, it's really personal, right? It's, it's me honoring those who came before me, who opened the doors for people like me and my parents to be able to vote and participate in this process. And obviously it's because our lives depend on it, right?
0: My next question is for Dana Shelly. What are some of the common problems and uh, and also some of the good signs we've seen across the country in the 2020 primary election?
3: Thank you, Amber. From the ACLU of Maryland's perspective, it was, I'd like to just start on the the positive side. First, it was exciting to see the collective power of voting rights experts and advocates to bring about mail-in voting in more locations across the country as the 2020 primary elections continued, and to have people see it as an absolute must-do during the time of COVID-19. On the downside, the fact that we still have to explain the need for making voting fully accessible for everyone and to come up with methods and solutions and alternatives to what has been done in the past, everyone line up, be in an enclosed space, that's a challenge that we still have to explain why we need to be more creative this time, especially in times of national emergencies like we're dealing with in this this health pandemic.
0: Joanne Antoine, I did want to get some, just some better like context, cause we heard of a lot that happened with the June primary uh, 2020 election in Maryland. So can you just explain to our listeners, like what happened?
2: Ooh, so much, where do we
0: uh,
2: <laughs> begin, right? Obviously, um, you know, uh, early in March, we reached the peak of COVID-19, the pandemic. Uh, Maryland was shutting down. Uh, The governor had just declared a state of emergency. And under a state of emergency, the governor uh, then has the powers to change uh, the election process. Um, and what he did, Governor Hogan, you know, he fi- he made the right decision this time. Uh, he instructed the State Board of Elections to move forward with automatically mailing all active registered voters a ballot, right? And this was a good thing because we knew that we'd have trouble staffing in-person voting locations, right? Poll, poll workers are historically older, retired, and they're high risk. We also knew that a lot of these facilities would be closed and that Marylanders, right, people like me, I didn't want to leave my home, right? I didn't know what to expect when I went out there. The convenience of receiving my ballot at home, having it uh, include a return envelope that was prepaid postage, being able to drop it in the mail or by Dropbox really worked. Now, there was a lot of advocacy to get in-person options. I think when you look at all of the states that have vote by mail, it can't, work alone, right? Voters still need to have all of the options. So even though vote by mail provides a number of benefits, there are voters who um, have disabilities, right? Who need to be able to use a ballot marking device. Uh, There are voters who can't read and write, right? They have language access issues. Uh, There are voters who, again, when we're adopting a new process like this, where Maryland had only been mailing absentee or mail-in ballots to people I think less than 10% of eligible voters, right? We knew that a lot of people would not receive their ballots. And we saw that in places like Baltimore City and Prince George's and other parts of the state. And unfortunately, even though we managed to get a few very limited in-person options, those options were only available on election day, even though, again, we we said all these things would happen. And what what we saw happen were very long lines, right? Baltimore City, Prince George's County, we saw people in line for three and a half Four hours, right? They were unable to social distance. There were people who, you know, just couldn't stand for a long time. They've got children, they got to go to work. And, you know, there were people who unfortunately ended up disenfranchised. It should have been easier for them to vote. And unfortunately, they were faced with a number of hurdles. I think one additional piece is that not enough investment was made in voter education. And we recognize that all of the changes were made very quickly. But when someone is at home, Worried about their health, you know they just lost their job. How am I going to pay rent? I can't get through the unemployment system. They're not thinking about election day until election day gets there, right? Um, let alone that a ballot's coming to them in a mail that it's going to be in this plain white envelope. We saw a number of issues, and and unfortunately, a lot of people found out how to vote after election day. But I'm hopeful that we've learned from those mistakes because while we're, while there no, were a number of issues, um, we did see an increase in turnout in other parts of the state, even in Baltimore City, which I believe had the highest participation um, in that election.
0: And Reverend Kobe Little, I actually wanted to talk to you about uh, a bit about Baltimore. I wanted to definitely get like get a sense of like what are you seeing on the ground in Baltimore since it has historically been a hot spot area and it's also predominantly um, a black city for the general election. What are some of the things you're seeing on the ground? Also, concerns you might have.
1: Well, there certainly is a lot of uh, concern and anxiety about the upcoming election, um, given the. Uh, additional shift from a voting system, pandemic voting system that worked, to one that is saying that we should open up every polling precinct in in, in Baltimore. Uh, And it's causing a lot of anxiety, uh, specifically because of uh, the rising numbers of of COVID-19 infection, the lack of poll judges who will be available, the need to close polling places because those uh, locations don't want to make the facilities available in a pandemic. And so we're also hearing uh, a governor saying that he's taking uh, this course of action because he wants to protect uh, the voting rights of black and brown communities. The problem with that is that he's not listening to the voices of the black and brown communities as it relates to how to best conduct this election. In June, we conducted a primarily vote by mail election with uh, drop boxes and voting centers. That allowed people to show up at these voting centers from any precinct in Baltimore City and sustain across the state. They could show up at a, any voting center in, in their jurisdiction, regardless of what precinct they came from, and cast a ballot. That system uh, passed legal muster, it uh, increased participation, it met the special needs of voters that uh, Joanne Antoine uh, mentioned earlier. And yet, uh, when Black and Brown advocates, when voting rights experts say we should be using the same system that we used in June uh, and correct for the bugs that that were identified in June, when the governor says that he wants to do the right thing, but he doesn't regard those voices, it causes a a lot of confusion. We are calling for the governor to pivot from his current uh, plan of action, which would call for people to apply for a mail-in ballot before they're actually sent a mail-in ballot. And we're doing this uh, for a number of reasons. One, it confuses the process. Two, it's not efficient. Three, the fact of the matter is that uh, there are uh, dozens, if not hundreds, of postal workers who are uh, who have been infected by the coronavirus. Um, we are adding another dimension of delay by asking people to uh, essentially participate in three rounds of mailing. Uh, the mailing to receive the application, the mailing to return the application, and then really it's for the mailing to receive the ballot and then the mailing to return the ballot. When uh, the governor could, by executive order, say that all ballots will be mailed and uh, all voters will uh, receive a ballot. Now, there are some concerns. Uh, What about ballots that are mailed to people who don't live at addresses anymore? What about people who... Uh, will practice uh, fraudulent uh, voting. Well, the fact of the matter is that voter fraud is just not a, a real threat in Maryland. It's not a real threat anywhere in, in, in the country. And we have provisions in the law to uh, protect against voter fraud and to correct for voter fraud. The greater threat, the historical threat, is voter suppression. And we've seen that over and over and over again. When you suppress the vote of Black communities, when you suppress the vote of immigrant communities, when you suppress the vote of of, of vulnerable populations, you are depriving them of the equivalent of their democratic oxygen. When you suppress votes, voters say we can't breathe. We cannot live our civic life. And so that's what we're seeing on the ground right now is the suppression the potential suppression of black and brown votes, the potential suppression of the votes of of urban populations, of vulnerable populations, of those populations that are most likely to experience voter suppression. And we're seeing it done in the name of protecting uh, the vote and protecting those vulnerable communities. Now, we can hope and pray at this moment that uh, the governor just needs clarity and that there's not any ill intent. Uh, uh, To that extent, we have been working to send clear messaging to the State Board of Elections and to the governor. Joanna,
0: I did want to ask you about, um, you know, there's been all types of concerns and questions about mail-in voting. Is it safe? Is it easily corruptible? Tell us the facts. How is voting by mail safe and secure?
2: You know, vote by mail, again, has the potential to increase and boost turnout all throughout the state, right? We see it. I think it's Vote at Home Institute that says states that adopt vote by mail systems, um, obviously coupled with all the options, right, in person and so forth, have the potential to increase turnout by over 10%. Um, And that's because it gives voters uh, convenience and and greater access, right? Even in a state like Maryland, where we have eight days of early voting, in addition to election day, you'd be surprised by the number of people who still have a difficult time getting to a polling location, right? You work a double shift, you start the day at seven, you get off at 11, transfer public transportation is limited on the weekend, and your vote set, your early voting center is not located near you, and you can't get to the place on on election day, right? So vote by mail, again, gives you the convenience of being able to vote from home, um, in addition to giving you more time to research the candidates and research the information. And I think the biggest piece here, vote by mail is secure, right? A vote by mail is a paper-based system, uh, which makes it easier for us to, you know, if there's an issue where there needs to be a recount, we can easily pull up that data, right? Um, And and so forth. it's, um, I'd say in Maryland, we have a number of measures in place that hold bad actors accountable. Again, there there was no cases of that, at least in the primary, for example, Um, and in the city of Rockville, where they used a vote by mail for the first time in 2019. You know, there's no cases of that in the state. But when that does happen, if in that rare instance, Maryland has procedures in place to hold those individuals accountable. So it's not something that people should be sec- concerned about at all. Again, it's a paper-based system that's just not hackable. Uh, and even when you're taking your ballot and doing, how would I say, dropping off, dropping it off in something like a, a Dropbox, for example, there's 24-hour, 24-7 surveillance there. So it shouldn't be something that you're concerned about at all. It creates greater convenience and accessibility, and it is secure.
0: Dana Pekashele, I wanted to also ask you, how can other elected officials and state leaders make sure that voters are fully engaged and can participate in our elections in November?
3: Amber, I really appreciate that question. One of the things that we saw that worked in the during the primary in Maryland was the way that county executives and local elected officials were at the polling places, assisting voters who were driving up, drop, dropping their ballots off. I think that if we hear additional information from local officials to encourage people to participate and how they participate and let them know what's so important about participating, um, particularly given the governor's stance against mail-in voting. It's going to be even more important that local officials, our county executives, county council members, uh, legislators, are fully engaged as a policy community, as a wider community, making sure that everyone is able to get out and cast their vote.
0: And Reverend Little, I did want to ask you, because unfortunately every year it seems, citizens of Baltimore have barriers and and issues uh, trying to access the votes. What are some of the recommendations you and other leaders are, are recommending to try to address these systemic issues?
1: Clearly, uh, going forward, all of our uh, policy crafting in the the Maryland General Assembly needs to be conducted with historical data and with voting rights and equity lens to correct uh, the inequity. Then we also need to be sure to reconfigure the process by which local boards of elections and the state board of election are constituted, whether it's through appointment or some other process, And there has to be greater accountability for these bodies so that when there are uh, motor voter snafus, when there are problems consistent year in, year out problems with vendors, when there is a failure to engage with policy community and the advocacy community that Ms. Uh, Vicar Shelley spoke of, that that there is uh, the capacity to make the changes that make the system work. But at the end of the day, I'm reminded from my years in Selma, the words of Albert Turner, and John Lewis and Bob Mance and Hosea Williams and so many others who crossed the bridge in Selma, the the marching chant was, I ain't gonna let nobody turn me around. I'm gonna keep on marching up to freedom land. In Baltimore and across this state, uh, African American voters and, and other voters have to be determined by engaging in the process to make sure that the local boards of elections and the state boards of elections um, administer our elections in a fair way that not only allows for full civic participation but also that serves as a model for the country and the world. The United States cannot continue to hold itself out as a leader in democracy while decade after decade after decade after decade disenfranchising black and brown communities, disenfranchising uh, people with disabilities, disenfranchising uh, low-income communities, disenfranchising communities uh, that have uh, political perspectives different than uh, the, ru- the, 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 the ruling party. And so uh, we would I would encourage and, and, and would join in the course with, with other advocacy Uh, organizations and encouraging people to be a part of the voting rights uh, struggle, to teach the importance of voting rights to our families and friends, to share our history. And as now, as it relates to the November election, the most important thing that people can do right now is stay up to date about how the election is going to be conducted. But no matter what, even if there are no changes in how the election is going to be conducted, we strongly encourage all voters to request a mail ballot. When you get the application for a mail ballot, fill it out, return it. And when the ballot comes, please cast your vote by mail. If you can't cast your vote by mail, then please deposit it in a drop box that will be situated in a convenient location in your community. And you can go to the State Board of Elections website uh, to find out where the drop boxes in your jurisdiction will be held. Uh, this is important for a number of reasons. One it's important to make sure that our votes are counted. Uh, This election is going to be a critical election and we must send a resounding message that we don't want tyranny in the White House. We need to send a resounding message that we want leaders who will actually lead. We need to send a a resounding message that we want leadership that will put human life before corporate profits and that won't disregard science but will embrace science as a means of protecting uh, American citizens and setting an example uh, of leadership in the world. If our votes aren't counted, that won't happen. And so we're encouraging everybody to vote by mail and to make sure that you protect yourself and you protect others uh, by not exposing yourself to the coronavirus and not gathering in large numbers. And so typically on election day, we see large numbers of people assembled at polling places, standing in line to cast their vote. Voting by mail is a way
0: Joanna, to protect
1: I I, the public health you, and to
0: protect um, your own. Health. To, uh, Marylanders who we often might not think about when it comes to voting rights. And those are people who are currently incarcerated. Um, P- Marylanders who are currently incarcerated for a misdemeanor or being held pretrial have the right to vote, but they don't often have access to the ballot. Can you talk about some of the recommendations you want the government to see to really make sure that eligible voters who are incarcerated have access to the ballot and can vote?
2: unfortunately, uh, when we talk about the rights restoration movement that's happening all throughout the country, um, this is where Maryland falls short. Um, Even though we've restored the right to vote for returning uh, felons, right, um, we still have not managed to put a program in place that ensures that those who are behind the wall, you know, that they have access to voting and voter education. You know, a lot of the work that we've been doing has been led by groups like Out for Justice, Life After Release, you know, directly impacted individuals who understand what it's like uh, to be incarcerated. Uh, And we've been working with them to figure out, you know, how to move forward with a, for now, a reasonable uh, system uh, that ensures that those who are eligible to vote and inside uh, that they have access. So I think the biggest piece here is we need data so right now you know the correctional facility has released a program that they have a program that is new to many of us and something that we don't believe has been implemented but hopefully will be implemented for the the general election but i think um, the state board if we want them to be able to uh, facilitate some type of program inside they need to know who inside is eligible to vote? And right now, unfortunately, we don't have access to those names, uh, and we don't—we're not even able to take those names and cross, you know, reference them with the voter file to try and figure out who would be eligible. I think once the state board is able to have that information, um, we can then uh, work to put together some type of a program uh, that ensures that the correctional facility is working with election officials uh, to put a program in place. There's been a lot of conversations about polling locations inside and so forth. I think those are things we'd love to see in the future. But for now, we want you to be able to register inside, we want you to be able to request a ballot inside, and we want the ballot to come to you and to be able to be returned securely with um, prepaid uh, postage, right? Um, And unfortunately, you know, it can't be the correctional facilities that oversee this process entirely um, because you know from what we hear from partners there's no guarantee that there won't be some type of intimidation inside that you know correctional facility staff won't manipulate the ballots in some type of way so hopefully once we get the data the state board and local boards will be able to work with the correctional facility to put a secure process in place and once that process is in place Voters behind the wall need access to voter education, just like the rest of us, right? So it's not enough just to get you a ballot, right? You need to have information about your candidates, the issues that are there, so getting a a Legal Women Voters voter guide inside, for example, um, is an additional thing that we're hoping uh, to put in place. I think one other aspiration, you know, a lot of times when folks are are coming back home, I think the bills before, there were supposed to be some components that ensured that we were educating newly released voters that they had the right to vote again, right, that they can go ahead and register and so forth. And we're hoping that adding the correctional facility to one of the uh, automatic voter registration agencies helps to improve that process. Someone who's coming back home will be asked instead, do you not want to be registered to vote, uh, rather than just leaving and not knowing that their rights have been restored.
0: And Dana Baker Shelley, I did want to ask you about some of the concerns we've had, unfortunately, election after election, both the state board of elections and also some local board of elections, about their lack of transparency and accountability. Can you just speak about some of the concerns and some of the patterns that we've been seeing year after year?
3: We wanna be sure that these elections, the elections boards understand that they're working for the people of Maryland. I think that's what's primary for, for them to keep both in their mission and their focus, not for any one elected official or any particular political party, but they work for the people of Maryland. What we want to see is a level of competence also and transparency that allows the board to be accountable to those people whom they truly serve. We want to know that they are following up with their individual vendors, that they're following up on their timetables, that they're looking and working with the local boards of elections, so in Maryland, that the state board would be working with those in the counties across the country. Where are there the highest turnouts? Let's make sure that there are always going to be enough ballots in those locations. Let's make sure that we don't have people in Prince George's County, for example, having to wait in line to vote until 10 and 11 o'clock at night because the local board of election or the state board of election didn't look at the data over the previous election to see there's going to be a high turnout here. We need to have enough ballots. Let's make sure that in Baltimore City, we have voting places open on time with the materials there so that when voters come in at 7 a.m. when the polls open before they go to work, where they have to look after their children or take care of elders, that the ballots and materials are ready for them to come in and vote. So we want to make sure that both in terms of how the election boards are thinking about their responsibility, and then just in terms of the election day, does everyone understand what their role is, what their job is, And that people are trained and that people are supported in getting the information to the voters that are needed so that everyone can have a full and complete and accurate participation in the process.
0: Joanna, Antoine, I wanted to talk to you about another group of voters that historically have been disenfranchised and that's people with disabilities. What can the government do to make sure that voting is easy in November for this population?
2: I actually wanted to read a quick quote from our colleague, uh, Ben Jackson, from Disability Rights Maryland. He says, there's a gambit of different disabilities that adding an additional barrier to complicate this process, that barrier being requesting a ballot, that would further disenfranchise a population uh, that is already at risk and turns out to the polls at a lower rate. You know, and I think it's important to lift up his quote because, again, this group of voters wouldn't be uh, facing so many risks if the governor... Would do his job under the state of emergency and mail uh, ballots to voters. Um, you know, I, I think Ben or Disability Rights Maryland has highlighted a number of issues that will be created because of the some of the technical pieces that we're seeing going wrong with the postal service. For example, you know, if voters are having to request a ballot and ballots don't get to them in time, right? And there's a limited number of locations that are open. We're gonna see more people at the polls. And what happens is, you know, a voter who has a disability, who has a, Um, who has to go in person to use a ballot marking device, for example, may have other autoimmune issues, right? Because we have more people in line, people are unable to social distance, that voter who has a disability, who has no choice but to go in person, now is put at greater risk because of our lack of action. I think some other issues that were highlighted, again, we know that there's trouble staffing polling locations. And because of the poll worker issue, there'll be fewer poll workers at these locations to assist the voters who who need it. So a voter who is blind, for example, who goes in person, there are signs there. They can't see the signs, right? And now there's a poll worker who's not outside um, to help direct them. And I'm sure a voter would step in and help there, But again, that shouldn't be the case. And again, during COVID, we don't want those interactions to happen either because it might not be safe. So these voters are already the most vulnerable in every single election. COVID-19 has made that even a greater risk for them. And uh, the governor uh, not taking action to automatically mail ballots, unfortunately, is creating a situation where uh, these voters will be at greater risk if they go in person
0: you know right now we are living through a global uh, pandemic that is growing and still spreading and affecting people we are also living through an unprecedented demand for racial justice and accountability from our police on the other side of covid-19 what do we hope you know our voting system looks like on the other side of this like when the next time in 2022 we have to go back to the ballots and vote what do you, what do you hope that we either learn or change uh, when we come to that next election
3: Hi, this is Dana Vickers-Shelley. I think that 2020 as a whole, beginning with the global health pandemic, the unprecedented and overdue focus on racial justice and racial equity is pushing us as a country, as a community, and allowing us to think differently about really everything, but particularly about how democracy is, is access for all. Um, It is pushing us to think differently about how to make voting accessible. Many states in this country have already been using vote by mail for years and had and been doing so with great success and increased voter participation. So we can all look at these different ways of voting to make sure that the ballot is available to all. Mail-in voting should be the way of the future as is making election day a national holiday. If 2020 has taught us nothing, it's that we can do things differently. We can solve problems differently. And these biggest and most important challenges that our country has, we have to, we have to do something
1: different to make democracy work for everyone. And I think that going forward, one of the things that the pandemic has laid bare for everyone to see is the inequities that are existent in American society. They're undeniable. They're undeniable, uh, as we've seen uh, from police violence and police terror this year. They are undeniable, uh, as we see uh, the very dire consequences of white supremacy and inequity in terms of public health and how there have been disparate outcomes in terms of infection, in terms of mortality, in terms of treatment uh, for people Uh, of color when it comes to coronavirus, as well as how uh, during this state of emergency, uh, people of color and other vulnerable populations have been able to access uh, the resources uh, that are necessary to sustain themselves through the pandemic. So I'm hopeful that when we finally make it out of this very challenging time, that everyone will be acutely aware of the importance of protecting uh, the rights of the most vulnerable first, whether it's an education or housing or elections, and I would like to see an America where there is an absolute emphasis on planning with the most vulnerable in mind first. So that uh, our lens on elections is how do we make sure is how do we make sure people who have historically been disenfranchised, people who currently have uh, difficulty accessing the ballot. How do we make sure that they have access to the ballot and are in fact able and empowered to cast their vote? It is unacceptable that we are still making public policy uh, with a white supremacist um, slavery lens. And when you uh, are uh, focused on elections in a way where your primary concern is how to keep people from voting or how to disqualify people from voting, whether it's with voter ID, or with matching up voting lists and signatures, or if it is through constantly changing Uh, the way that elections happen or if it's through uh, gerrymandering and so on and so forth, if that's your practice, that's a practice that's steeped and born out of white supremacy. It's steeped and born out of an exclusionary lens that uh, says that some people are only counted as three fifths of a person, that the vast majority of the society, uh, if they're not white, if they're not male, if they're not landowners, don't have the right to vote. And we need to make an absolute shift coming out of this pandemic to be inclusive, to be universally empowering, and to make sure that all people can really realize the true promise of democracy, which is that the people come first and that all people in the society have a right to practice uh, the vote and to experience the rights that are extended to them through the constitution. It is outrageous that in correctional facilities, There are thousands and thousands and thousands of people who have the right to vote. And there has heretofore been no effort to make sure that they're able to exercise that right. And this isn't a country uh, that says that people are innocent until proven guilty. And many, 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 many people uh, who are in correctional facilities are there uh, under pretrial conditions. They have not been convicted of any crimes. And yet the state has actively deprived them of their right to vote. It is the electoral equivalent of depriving people of food. And so I'm hopeful that uh, out of this uh, experience of the pandemic, that we have a much more inclusive participatory system, that we shift our policymaking lenses from policymaking lenses of exclusion and superiority to policymaking lenses of inclusion and empowerment that are focused on the needs and the rights of the most vulnerable uh, first. And I guess uh, a final word, we're seeing a train wreck unfold before our eyes again. We saw that this spring with the primary election. There were lots of identifiable problems. We tried to communicate these problems uh, to the State Board of Election. I'm hopeful that uh, under the leadership of Danner Vickers, Shelley and Joanne Antoine and Emily Scar from Maryland Park, and so many others, that we will call on the governor and the State Board of Elections to identify a list of success predictors that will help us to gauge how likely the November election is to be successful. And if there are problems and those predictors don't show that we're on track for success, that there will be contingency plans in place to offer corrective measures so that we can ensure that all Marylanders are able to participate and register their choice in the November election.
2: Uh, I agree with everything that uh, both Dana and Reverend Little uh, have shared. My hope is that we um, will move forward with creating a more equitable election process. You know, it's shocking when you sit down and you're listening to state board uh, meetings and you're listening to appointed board members who are saying that they're shocked that you know voters are experiencing. Uh, Well, black and brown voters are overwhelmingly experiencing issues voting, you know, in jurisdictions like Prince George's, Baltimore City, Charles County, when that is just common knowledge, right? It is the norm. I have only lived in Maryland for six years and the places that always experience issues are these locations. So, you know, my hope is that we you know, I think overhauling the board is going to take some time, right? We need to take a seat and, and really look at how that structure is set up and, and our process for appointing these members, even at the local level, looking at ways that we can, uh, how would I say, put a, a policy uh, in place where the board is required to, you know, look at data that helps them understand how this decision will impact X communities, right? Let's put look at putting a chief equity officer in that office that will force them to take another look at the way that they're working. And let's train them uh, and the local administrators as well, who, um, you know, just for whatever reason, don't seem to understand uh, the hurdles that the voters in, in the places where they work, you know, that they're experiencing. I would say outside of that, you know, I know we've talked a lot about the state board, the governor, we need to hold the General Assembly accountable here too. You know, the General Assembly has had multiple opportunities uh, to pass reform that would have ensured that we got voting uh for for voters behind the wall uh that would have explored studying a vote by mail system and every single time these bills go nowhere right a study Something as simple as a study that doesn't really cost the state much, um, that data would have helped us implement these changes a lot smoother. And while the General Assembly has been holding the state board accountable, I hope that when we go back in session this January that they remember all of what they've been saying and that they're come back ready to take action um, in improving the election process in January.
0: And my last question for everybody is, if people are experiencing um, issues with voting, if they have uh, other questions that we didn't cover today um, as it relates to exercising their voting rights, how can people get in touch with each of your organizations to help address these issues? send an email to the governor's office and just let them know what issue you're having,
2: right? Any additional pressure we're able to add uh, and share with him helps with our efforts to hopefully make a shift to vote by mail. Um, And after you've sent that email, you can contact us. Uh, Feel free to call our office. 443-906-0442. 443-906-0442. Uh, you can shoot me, shoot us an email, ccmd
3: at commoncause.org. One of our team members will get to you. Thank you, Joanne. And with the ACLU of Maryland, our election protection hotline, our direct number to our experts who can assist voters with questions they may have or issues that may come up in the, as they get ready to vote, and we'll be operating now all the way through Election Day, is 443 443- 399 Thanks so much,
1: Amber. Yeah, absolutely. We want to uh, welcome uh, your viewers and listeners to uh, find us on Facebook at NAACP Baltimore Branch, Baltimore City Branch. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram at NAACP Baltimore. And we encourage you, if you're encountering voting rights issues or if you have questions about how to access your ballot to direct message us on one of those platforms, or to reach out to us at NAACPBaltimore at gmail.com. Our website is nacpbaltimore.org. You know, we encourage you to join us. We meet on the fourth Tuesdays of every month, and our uh, meetings are live streamed on our Facebook page. The Voter Protection Hotline is an outstanding way to register your complaints and your concerns, and I know the ACLU is very responsive in that regard.
0: Thank you everyone. I just wanted to say, you know, I learned a lot uh, about all the different concerns, but also all the different opportunities that we have um, in both in this election and, you know, hopefully in future elections as well. Just thank everyone for for uh, talking with us today and make sure you folks, please, there is way too much at stake for us to just sit out this election. For joining us for this episode of Thinking Freely. If you like Thinking Freely, make sure to leave a review and subscribe to us from wherever you get your podcasts. You can also go to our website, aclu-md.org, to find more Know Your Rights information about voting during the COVID-19 pandemic. I just want to personally thank you for listening to Thinking Freely. This is our 13th episode. So Thinking Freely is one year old and it could not be possible without you and your support. This show was recorded at my house in Baltimore, Maryland because we are still practicing social distancing and was recorded on Viscataway Native American land. I'm Amber Taylor, the host and producer of Thinking Freely.
1: Till next time.